This is Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for Changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. I have to admit, I was well into adulthood before I realized that prison labor was still a thing. I mean, I watched Cool Hand Luke, Paul Newman, and I listened to Sam Cooke singing about the sound of the men working on a chain gang. But those were 60 years ago, so when my mind conjures up images of prison labor, they tend to be in technicolor and sweaty. When I moved to Virginia, I found out that prison labor is not only still used, it's baked into state law. State agencies and public colleges are required to purchase products made by Virginia Correctional Enterprises. VCE is the body that employs and trains inmates around the state. These products made from prison labor are all around us. You might not even realize it. On their website, VCE boasts that their products range from the chairs in state and federal offices to textbooks that are printed for public schools. They say they provide the linens at a Virginia teaching hospital and then provide laundry and delivery services for those linens. Inmates do get paid for this labor, they just get paid very, very little. Between 27 cents and 80 cents per hour. Even with the, uh, lodging included, that's a minuscule amount of money for inmate workers. Advocates for this prison labor system argue that it prepares inmates for success after incarceration by providing them with vocational skills. But it's not clear how well that rehabilitation and reintegration is actually working. So I do very much appreciate the value of a good career, of a good job, but, you know, I, I don't know that, that, that prison labor is furthering that in very many cases. That's Carrie Blakinger. She's a staff writer at The Marshall Project, which is a nonpartisan, nonprofit news organization focused on the criminal justice system. In the second half of today's show, she takes us through some of the current considerations about prison labor. Critics of the prison labor system in Virginia and around the country say it's more akin to modern-day slavery than vocational training. With few exceptions, inmates are required to work if cleared by medical professionals at the prison and there are punishments for refusing to work. Former Virginia delegate Lee Carter introduced bills in 2019 and 2020 that would have reformed Virginia's prison labor system, including one that would require paying incarcerated Virginians at least minimum wage for their labor. Both of these bills died in committee. So we open the show today with another journalist from the Marshall Project, Beth Schwartzapfel, and she talked with Bold Dominion producer Esther Erickson Van Allman to explain the history and system of prison labor. My name is Beth schwartz I'm a reporter at The Marshall Project. Um, I've been covering criminal justice for over a decade now and have been really interested in prison labor for many years, uh, primarily because it's this really interesting kind of inflection point between labor unions, which are, you know, a bastion of the left traditionally, and, you know, criminal justice reform, mass incarceration. Yeah, yeah. Could you talk a bit about the history of prison labor in the U.S.? Okay, so many people trace the modern system of prison labor back to the 13th Amendment, which out- outlawed slavery, of course. But one clause inside, sort of tucked inside the 13th Amendment says um, that slavery is pro- prohibited except as punishment for a crime. And so um, a number of states read that as granting them permission, essentially, to enslave prisoners. And, you know, no state uses that word, of course. Um, But there are a a handful of states, 
I think it was five at my last count, who require prisoners to work and do not pay them for their work. And even in states that do pay, um, you know, the most that someone's going to make in prison is, you know, a, a dollar an hour, maybe. Um, and these are for jobs that the prisons would have to be paying um, an outside employee minimum wage for. Um, mm-hmm. And there are certainly jobs that prisons create that are essentially make work, right, to like keep people busy. But there are a lot of jobs that somebody has to do. So if the prisoners are not preparing the food and washing the dishes, then an outside employee would be doing that for minimum wage or more. Um, And so I think when we look at um, just the rise of mass incarceration, when we look at the vast expansion of the sort of prison system over the last generation, I think it's fair to say that how little we pay prisoners is directly linked to it. Because if we had to pay minimum wage to all the people who were doing all the things to keep the prisons running, there's no way. There's no way they could operate on the scale that they operate right now. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, Yeah. Some people refer to prison labor as modern day slavery. And I was wondering if you if you find that to be an accurate description, is it misrepresenting prison labor at all? I mean, I think that I think that the word slavery is certainly feels accurate in the states that pay prisoners nothing. I think that it feels close to accurate in the state in the rest of the states that pay prisoners almost nothing. However, I do think the word slavery is is a loaded word for obvious reasons and a very incendiary word and um is, you know, activists use it quite effectively to highlight the unfairness and the oppression that um come with this system of labor. But I do think that it obscures some of the larger questions that we need to ask ourselves if we want to sort of grapple with this question. Um, So for one thing, um, there's the question of profit and who benefits. I think, for instance, private prisons, despite how controversial they are and how much they come up in these kind of conversations, private prisons actually constitute a fairly small number of of prisons, percentage of of prisons in this country. However, if a private prison pays prisoners little or nothing, then there's a direct line between exploiting the prison workers and that company's profit, right? Because a private prison is a profit-making institution. That comes up also often in ICE detention centers. The detention centers where immigrants are held while their immigration cases are being processed are almost exclusively private prisons. And there's an added layer of irony there because People get all up in arms about, quote, you know, illegal immigrants taking our jobs. Well, these are like literally people in the country without papers being paid little or nothing to do jobs that otherwise Americans would do. Um, so that is a, that is a, a, like a bucket of worms all on its own. When you talk about, you know, state run prisons, I think the profit motives are there, but they're a lot more cloudy it's not like states profit off of prisons. Quite the opposite. You know, corrections budgets are, you know, breaking the bank in a lot of states because so many people are locked up. States are spending obscene amounts of money 
on the on their correctional systems. I think there are a lot of companies that glom on to the state prison systems and make money um, that are sort of providing ancillary services. So um, phone companies, companies that provide, you know, a lot of prisons now provide these tablets. Essentially, they're kind of like they're kind of like iPads, but they're um, proprietary. And um, in many states, you know, in order to use them, you have to buy, you know, stamps or credits to listen to music or pay for movies or, you know, so you've got this tablet, but it's kind of meaningless unless you pay the company money to use it, essentially. Canteen commissary companies are are private. So Again, I think when you pay prisoner, what you pay prisoners, there is a very clear line between that and private industry in the form of these different companies. I don't think it's quite as clear cut as people make it seem as far as the profit motives are concerned. If anything, these companies would probably benefit more if prisoners were paid more because they would spend more, right, at commissary and on their tablets and stuff like that. That said, these companies also benefit when there are more people in prison and the way we're, we can afford to have as many people in prison as we do is by paying them very little for their labor. Yeah, I know that in Virginia there was a bill introduced um, in the state legislature to require that incarcerated people are paid at least a minimum wage. And from what I've read, it seems like a lot of these jobs in prisons, even if they're low paying, are still highly coveted. And it seems like maybe if you were to require a minimum wage, some of these jobs would go away. I was wondering if there have been any sort of proposed solutions to this type of dilemma almost. A law did pass like that in Colorado recently. Mm-hmm. Um, but And when I first saw it, my brain exploded. Um, the headline was, new Colorado law requires minimum wage for some prison workers. And oh. I you know, was like, what? And just did a little reading. And when I found out what some prison workers meant, what it meant was only for those prisoners who participate in day release programs that allow them to work off site. So basically prisoners who are the the handful, uh, uh, there are about a hundred people who are already working in the free world just while they're incarcerated. So that is a pretty big caveat (laughs) to a fairly um, attention grabbing headline. Um, I think, again, the answer to that question is really complicated. You're right. I think people want and need these jobs. Um, and especially when they're meaningful jobs, like I've been in touch with a bunch of guys. Um, Kansas has a, uh, a program where prisoners can work for minimum wage folding balloons, don't ask me like who's paying them to do this. It's some private company that's, you know, contracting with a prison to have them from what I understand package balloons. So, on one hand, they're making, you know, reasonable money and they feel lucky for that. On the other hand, it's mindless work, you know, and like if the idea is that it's supposed to prepare you for some job on the outside like we don't really have like factory jobs like that in this country anymore. Not, not, not very much. On the other hand, actually, I've been in touch with one gentleman who is um, a mental health aide. I think they call it a prisoner observation assistant. So when somebody's on suicide watch, if a prisoner voices that he's suicidal in Michigan, it's a fellow prisoner who's received special training that sits with him um, to k- keep eyes on him. And, um, 
to me, he, he expressed to me that that is incredibly meaningful work in addition to it paying him more than other prison jobs. So that's an instance where you can say to yourself, that's win-win, right? This guy's making good money doing that and he feels good about what he does with his days. None of that answers your question quite. I think that you are right that these jobs that pay uh, a meaningful wage and that provide meaningful work are really essential to the rehabilitation that we say is at the heart of our correctional system, right? You need to give somebody something meaningful to do with their days and you need to give them a nest egg to start their life with on the outside if you want them to go out and do good. You know, you can't put somebody out on the street with like $5 of gate money in their pocket because they haven't been able to save anything all these years because they've been paid so little and say, you know, go out and do good in this world and don't commit any more crimes. I mean, that's just a setup. Yeah. In your reporting, you've obviously spoken to a lot of people that are familiar with prison labor, have done prison labor. And so I was wondering, are the attitudes towards prison labor from the people that have actually done it mixed? Are there very widely shared grievances? I definitely think folks are mixed. I mean, you hear a lot about the 13th Amendment from people. You know, it's prisoners who organized the nationwide prisoner strike, multiple nationwide prisoner strikes over the last number of years. And I know of several of them who suffered quite a bit of retaliation from prison administration as a result of their activism around this. So I think you definitely have people who are committed to, you know, highlighting the wrong of this um, system. You also have people who, you know, say, yeah, I wish it were more fair. I wish I were paid more, but it sure beats sitting in my cell all day and staring at the wall. I'm happy to have something to do. You know, it just runs the gamut. I also have have met people who refuse to work. They're just like, no, I don't want to get involved. Like, I'm, I, I, for what they pay me, I'd rather like sit in my cell and read books and write letters and study. And no, thank you. I'm not participating in your system. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you want to share? I'm glad that you asked about what incarcerated people think. I mean. Part of the problem with prisons and jails is that, by definition, the people inside are behind walls and fences, and it's very hard to hear their voices. Um, You know, they're not allowed to vote, so they don't have political power. They're often, you know, the way that um, voting districts work, like their power is often diluted, um, even when they can vote, say they get out on parole and there's states that allow people on parole to vote. Um, it's, it's extremely complicated. Anyway, all this is to say, this is not a population whose voice gets heard in any meaningful way. You know, do what you can to hear from incarcerated people directly um, what their experience has been. Beth Schwartzapfel is a staff writer at the Marshall Project. Stick around. In the second half of today's show, we're going to look more closely at some of the considerations around prison labor today. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Hey, and I want to tell you, we're looking for good ideas to cover in future episodes. If you've ever had a question about state politics, you know, something that just didn't make sense and you wanted somebody to explain it to you, well, let us know. Maybe we can help. Shoot us an email at bolddominion.org at virginia.edu. And you can always find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. 
go ahead and subscribe. It's just a click away. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. You can check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music and community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Well, we return now to our discussion about prison labor in Virginia and around the United States and the controversy surrounding it. Carrie Blakinger from The Marshall Project talked with Bold Dominion producer Esther Erickson Van Allman. Hi, I'm Carrie Blakinger. I'm an investigative reporter with The Marshall Project. Just to start off, to what extent is prison labor voluntary in the U.S.? I know that in some states, prisoners are required to work and they have no say in it, but in others, they're it is a bit more voluntary. Um, so I was wondering like, if there are other factors that might push people into doing this type of work. Well, I mean, I think it really, I think it really depends what we mean when we say required and voluntary. Because in the context of prisons, there's you know, not a lot of jobs that are um, voluntary. You know, in, in a lot of prisons, you're required to have some sort of job, uh, you know, or at least accept whatever job assignments you are given unless you're of a security level that would preclude you from working. So typically if you're, you know, of a custody level that would end up with you being in solitary in Texas, for instance, we call that G5, that's the highest security level or death row. Those folks are all in solitary. So they're not having jobs. They're not required to work. You know, everyone else, unless they're deemed medically unfit, uh, is, is pretty much generally going to be given a job of some kind. There are exceptions. You might be in some sort of treatment program or something. But by and large, if you're, you know, considered able-bodied and eligible, like you're, you're typically getting a job assignment. Now, there are certain jobs you can volunteer for. You can decide in California that you want to try to be a prisoner firefighter. And that job can be fulfilling and that pays more and that has some possibility of, you know, giving you skills that you can use after prison. But, you know, a lot of the time you're just getting assigned a job like mess hall or janitorial work or um, something like that. And if you don't do your job, you, you know, there's consequences in most systems like solitary or, um, you know, simply a write-up that could impact your ability to get parole I think that when people say that prison working in prison is voluntary, it's often the choice is work or go to solitary. And I don't know that that's a whole lot of a choice. So is that is that very common that even in states where incarcerated people aren't required to work, they can still be penalized if like it can affect their parole or, or other things? Is that is that normal? So in all the states that I have found policies for, like there is some consequence if you are assigned a job and do not do it. I've never found a state where that's just truly optional. Such a state might exist. Um, you know, Colorado can be pretty progressive. Maybe it's optional there. Um, but in all the states that I have found policies for, it's always that there's some consequence to refusing to work. Mm-hmm. You've, you've written about how there are certain prison labor programs that cost more to run than they actually make in, in revenue from the products sold. And some might read that and, and think of it as a potentially a good thing just because it means that these labor p- 
programs aren't entirely motivated by profit. Um, I was wondering what you what you think of that. Are unprofitable prison programs equally problematic as as the profitable ones? Well, so so first of all, I mean, I don't think that a program losing money is evidence that it's in some way ethically superior. I think that's um, I, I think that really requires some mental gymnastics to make that argument. But, you know, the other thing here is that a, a lot of people tend to assume that private prisons are the problem and that, you know, private labor in prisons, you know, people making things for Victoria's Secret or whatever is the problem. Both of those things are a really small portion of what's going on. Like, most prisons are not private, and most prison labor is not for a private outside entity. So then when we start thinking about the importance of, you know, profit or losing money, it's a little different because what we're talking about is, you know, things the government is selling to itself. The most common thing for prison labor is to be making products that are being sold to other state or governmental entities and in that case you know it probably doesn't make a whole lot of sense for one government entity to be very inefficiently making items to sell to another government entity when it would in fact be a better use of taxpayer dollars to you know just simply buy them on the free market and and this is the other sort of nuanced thing that I think is important to understand about prison labor uh, and, and when it sort of fails to deliver, a lot, of, uh, a lot of the time when the numbers don't seem favorable, it's not necessarily that the prison labor program is outright losing money. That, there are some states in which that has happened at times, but the more common thing is for states to run programs that, it would, that are so inefficient, it would simply be more efficient to buy the item. One example, for instance, would be Texas where uh, one of the items that has been unprofitable or, or that, you know, has, has, um, that would have been cheaper to simply buy is cotton. They, uh, they grow their own cotton, they harvest their own cotton, they, you know, they process it and make clothes out of it. They make inmate uniforms, they make, you know, staff uniforms. And an audit over a five-year period found that, you know, they would have saved about a million dollars a year if they had simply bought the bought the cotton instead of harvesting it so you know that's more typically the dynamic and it's it's not always that they're outright losing money it's simply that they're being so inefficient it would be cheaper to buy them which is kind of remarkable considering how little prisoners are paid why is it the case then that they they choose to continue running these inefficient programs if it if it's not to make money I know that some people argue that these programs can decrease recidivism. And do you think that there is a genuine belief that that's what these programs are doing? Or are there other reasons why it might be useful for a prison to have these type of labor programs in place? So I think this answer varies a little bit. I think in some states, you know, that these programs continue in part because they want to keep inmates busy. If you have a bunch of people sitting around bored for years in a dorm like that, it can lead to problems. So I think that's, that's one sort of motivation. Um, but in terms of recidivism, you know, I haven't, uh, you know, first, I haven't seen good studies on whether 
all innate labor broadly increases or, or reduces recidivism because I think it's really hard to measure. If you have almost everybody being required to perform some sort of job, it's kind of hard. What are you measuring that against, right? The, the people who aren't working, um, one of the biggest demographics of that is going to be your people who are in solitary. And many of them would have been higher risk of recidivism anyway. So if you're comparing a lower recidivism population that's working to a higher recidivism population that's not, that really kind of muddies the waters for any study. And this is, I think, one problem with a lot of recidivism data for, for specialized programs in general. Um, you know, and the other thing is, I think that one of the things that has been very well studied is that jobs correlate to lower recidivism rates, having a job when you come out. So then we have to sort of think about whether the prison labor programs are giving people useful skills. And that's kind of a mixed bag. Like I said, firefighting, if you live in a state where prisoner, former prisoners with felonies on the record can be firefighters, um, that's, that's probably a useful skill that might actually be a fulfilling career. But if you're, um, you know, if you're working the mess hall, uh, you probably don't, that's not a, like, learning how to load an industrial dishwasher is, you know, probably not a, a cherished training skill that, that brings you some, you know, long fulfilling career afterwards. Um, and I think, for instance, also, when you look at things like farm labor, there's a lot of states that have prisoners working on farms. And that is something that is often not a useful job skill for people who went to prison, because many of them are from urban areas and are not going to become farmers. Are there any instances where prison labor might actually increase your likelihood of recidivism? I haven't seen any data on that. The one thing about that that I would sort of think about is, I think in general, if you put people in dehumanizing conditions, and if you, for instance, don't pay them at all and they have no means to you know, call home and, and maintain the relationships that we know are important to reducing recidivism because, you know, maintaining family ties is correlated with lower recidivism. So if, if your prison labor is so bad that it's traumatizing people who are going through these programs, then yeah, one might imagine that could have an impact on recidivism. And if you're not paying people so that their jobs don't help them uh, maintain the important family ties, like then that could negatively impact recidivism. But these are only things that I can sort of imagine might be causal. I haven't actually seen uh, data showing any sort of causality there. I also wonder like how relevant recidivism actually is in like discussing the ethics of prison labor, like even if, even if it definitively did decrease recidivism if it's doing so in like a deeply unethical way it might not be as important as we think it is yeah I mean I you're right I I think that there's a lot of different factors in terms of when we're thinking about um what where the pitfalls are with with prison labor um on the one hand I think that for me in the long run, having a career, having a job, having something that, you know, helps me find meaning in life has been so key to not recidivating. Um, so I do very much appreciate the value of a good career, of a good job. But, you know, I, I don't know that, that, that prison labor is 
furthering that in very many cases. I guess my last question is just, in given your reporting experience and also your personal experiences, like, do you get a sense of the general attitudes that from like the discussions you've had with people that have done prison labor, uh, their general attitudes towards prison labor? Because it's my understanding that it's sometimes a little bit mixed because a lot of the jobs are coveted and some people really do want to work, but obviously like that's not the case with everyone. I feel like there's a lot of people who are a little bit indifferent to it. You know, if the alternative is sitting on your bunk all day, then it's kind of like, I don't know, six of one, half a dozen of the other. But if you're, uh, you know, if, if you're getting a job that is fulfilling and meaningful and you're getting something out of it, you, you might be more likely to enjoy your job. And, you know, if you're being forced to do field labor in the summer in Texas, I haven't actually found anyone who thought that that was uh, something they enjoyed doing or, or was beneficial. Um, so again, I mean, I think that the sort of the conditions and the value to the, the prisoner and to their future and to their, you know, self-worth. And I think all of these things are sort of really important to take into account when we think about um, whether, whether prison labor has any uh, value to society as a whole, to the individual, um, you know. So, so, yeah, I think that these are just some of the considerations. Carrie Blakinger is a staff writer at The Marshall Project. Thanks to her and also to Beth Schwartzapfel. My name's Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. Our producer this week was Esther Erickson Van Allman, and our editor was Katherine Hansen. Find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away. <laughs>